we transitioned this week um, from our last couple of weeks where Jesus was speaking particularly to his disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John on the Mount of Olives. And he was uh, functioning in a prophetic role where he was speaking about what would come to pass. Both what would come to pass for the, the church and, 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 and the, the disciples being sent out because Jerusalem was going to be um, destroyed and the temple was going to be destroyed. And then he was also looking forward to his coming again when he would make all things right. When there would be no more crying and no more tears and no more sadness. And so you have this beautiful um, discourse that we've taken some time to look at. And I would just, I hope you were encouraged. I know I was. I, I want to continue to challenge some of those things and say, hey, where's my hope resting? Is my hope resting in, in the circumstantial and in the everyday, or do I have a better hope than that? A hope that Jesus is going to come and he's going to restore all things and make all things right. And so I hope that's been some of your wrestle this week. But we're in uh, Mark 14, and, and so Mark. The gospel writer is continuing to progress and move the story along. And one of the ways where we see the story being moved along is he kind of gives us a setting. Talks about the fact that they're in the temple, or they're in Jerusalem, and it's the time of Passover. And so we're going to look more at that next week. There's a lot to what that Passover means. That Passover wasn't something that went away when Jesus came, but Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise of the Passover. And so I pray that we would be able to see that and enjoy that and that it would have meaning for us. But this morning, we're really looking at two things. We're looking at two people. We are given um, two very close people to Jesus as examples. And, and Mark writes in such a way that he kind of juxtaposes the two. He puts them side by side. And you see Judas. Judas who traveled with Jesus and knew Jesus and spent three years and was intimately involved in all of his teachings and saw the miracles and saw what Jesus did. And we see his reaction. And Mark gives us an unnamed woman who saw Jesus and received from Jesus. And we see her reaction. And so really, that's, that's where we're going to be this morning. And it speaks to each one of us. Because the reality, if, if, if this is true, if this word is true, and we've stood up and we've read it together and we've said, I believe it, then that means that Jesus has encountered each one of us. He's come to each one of us, whether it's in his word or, 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 or through uh, somebody introducing us to him. Jesus is before us, and now we have a response to that. And it's, what are we going to, how will we respond with our lives? And there's this woman who responds in this utterly beautiful way of worship. And it's intimate. And I think it's just, it challenges everything within us. And I pray that by the power of the Spirit, we would see that this morning. Because that's, what, that's what's being held up before us. It's like, that is beautiful. And that is what true worship is. And yet, we're very pragmatic. <laughs> we're a people that think that there's value in things that maybe sometimes Jesus isn't saying there's value in. 
And so we have to repent. And so I pray that, that even as we, we look to Jesus, we look at what He's done and how He's worshipped and what He has called beautiful and good, that it would lead us to repentance and belief today. Amen? Amen. So we need the Spirit to do that through His Word. God, would You give us ears to hear? And not just to hear words, but to see beauty, to gaze at one, to gaze in wonder, to be in awe, to be satisfied, to be changed. Would you give us uh, the gift of conviction that would lead us to repentance today? Would you challenge even the ways that we are deeply set? The ways that we have just functioned and said, well, that's just part of who I am, that you're actually wanting to change. To make like you are. God, I pray that your spirit would do that through the working of your word this morning. And I pray that it wouldn't just happen in this place, in this community center. uh, That it wouldn't happen in just Brevard in the U.S., but throughout the world. That you would change your bride, conform her to your image for your glory. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So we have this... Setting. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. This isn't new material. It's, it's not like they suddenly heard some things that Jesus was saying to Peter and Andrew and James and John on the Mount of Olives. And now they're upset. No, the, the religious people have had a problem with Jesus since the very beginning. If we go all the way back to, to Mark 3, which for us was a long time ago, um, but it's just a couple pages back. But you see that in the very beginning, Jesus was preaching a kingdom of God that was causing problems with the kingdom of man. Including the kingdom of man that was being labeled as the kingdom of God. And so they, they had real issues with Jesus and the way that he was saying, the things that he was saying... The way that he was interacting with people, the miracles that he was doing, what he was calling clean, what he was calling good. And so even in the very beginning, in, in Mark 3, it talks about the Herodians and the Pharisees were plotting to kill him. And so then we come to Mark 14, and we see that there's still the chief priests and the scribes are seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And we shouldn't be surprised We shouldn't be surprised that that's still happening. And so, if you begin in the beginning of the chapter, and then you look at the end in verses 10 through 11, it says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Listen, they couldn't, because of where they were at, They weren't going to be able to um, go and arrest Jesus because one of two things would happen. Either the people who were starting to see Jesus and really love him and enjoy him were going to have an uproar, or the Romans 
were going to see that, hey, this is, this is not good. And they were going to put the kibosh on it and shut everything down. And so they're left with this predicament where they can't do what they had planned with Jesus. And so they're looking for an alternative. And the alternative comes in Judas. We gloss over the story of Judas. Um, but it's one of the saddest stories in the Bible. The fact that someone who loved Jesus and followed him and spent time with him would be willing to go and turn him over to the authorities and turn him over for his own gain is an incredibly sad story. We don't know a lot about Judas. We don't know what's driving his heart all the time. But there's some evidence. We actually see it in a different account of this. Um, We see that Judas had been stealing money from Jesus' ministry. John writes that. And so we have this idea that, that Judas has an agenda and a program of what he thinks Jesus should be. And as he grows in his knowledge of finding out that Jesus is not that thing, he's disappointed. He's probably angry. And then eventually leads to him betraying Jesus. I'll tell you that in the midst of that, there is a a beautiful note today. If you have... um, experienced betrayal and hurt. If you've had a close friend or family member or someone that you trusted and they have let you down, you have an advocate in Jesus who knows exactly what you have experienced. And He loves you and is with you in that moment. And I think that that that's beautiful for us. Like We feel very alone in those moments, but Jesus knows And he too has experienced betrayal. And then he promises that he will never leave you or forsake you. And so I want you to cling to that today. If that's who you are and that's what you're experiencing. Judas had an idea of what Jesus was coming to do. And as he realized that Jesus was not coming to do that, he jettisoned Jesus. Got rid of him. Sold him out. Sold him into slavery. It says that um, when, then Judas Iscariot, who's one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. And when he heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. We have another account where it tells the amount of money, but it's, it's not a lot. It's not a lot. It didn't set Judas up for life. How often do, before we just move on and say, okay, well that's bad. How often do we do that? Like, what is our cost to set Jesus aside and say, no, I I have other things that are more important, or I have an agenda that I think we should be running, and Jesus, you're not doing that. You're not functioning in that way, so I'm going to put you aside. So that's something that we need to repent of. Something that we need to trust Him for. And so as we look at Judas, I, I just want us to... Um, we're we're going to circle back 
Because at the Last Supper, Jesus has some words for for Judas and, and actually condemns him. But at the same time, Judas is responsible for his own actions. Like God sovereignly is using this. Right? If you guys remember the story... Uh, the Old Testament story of Joseph, right? And his brothers sell him, they betray him, they sell him into slavery. All of these things happen, but eventually God sovereignly works that Joseph is the second in command of all of Egypt so that he could save his people and liberate them. And yet, does that absolve the brothers for the bad thing that they did in selling Joseph into slavery? No, they are still culpable and responsible for that act. However, God used it to bring about his glory. And we see that in the story of Judas at the same time. God uses Judas's betrayal to execute his perfect plan. His perfect plan of the Passover lamb. The lamb who was perfect coming to be slain for a people and to redeem them. And so this morning, we see that Mark puts Judas up and says this is a man who had his own agenda and rejected Jesus and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. But what we also have here is um, Mark interjects into the timeline. And so we're used to kind of a chronological story, but verse 3 is not happening chronologically. Mark is taking the story from Bethany where Jesus went and restored and healed Lazarus, right? Lazarus was dead. Jesus went and raised him from the dead. But that was, that's not correctly in the timeline right now. But Mark is remembering and he's putting it in this place for a particular reason so that we can be encouraged today and so that the the people that he's writing to and the church that he's writing to in Rome would be able to see the beauty of, of what true worship looks like. Read verse 3 with me. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. That's an abrupt entrance. A lot of action right off the bat. So we need to gather some setting. Simon the leper... Most likely, one of the lepers who had leprosy, Jesus healed him because otherwise they wouldn't be in his house. And so there's this beautiful picture of restoration that's already happened in Bethany. And as he was sitting there because he had gone and Lazarus who was dead, Jesus went and resurrected and restored him to life. As he's sitting there after this and they're celebrating and remembering, this woman comes with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. What we have in this picture is is an extravagant love. I I struggle with this. I struggle to understand and to be able to separate some of my ideas of what love is and intimacy and sexuality and all of the different things that, that I have in my mind and to be able to see what this woman is doing and simply call it what it is. It's this intimate, beautiful love of one who has done much for her. 
One who has given life where there was death. And so she responds in the the most extravagant way she can think of. She goes and grabs the alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. That very costly is, uh, is an understatement. We would probably relate it to at least a half year's wages, maybe a full year's wages is the cost of this perfume, this anointing oil that's being poured out. And I want you to see that um, because of the way that, that it was kept, she immediately knew that this wasn't going to be just a little bit. This was going to be a full pouring out because she had to break the alabaster that it was contained in. There's no stopper. There's no screw on lid. It's not a little dabble, do you? No, she's going to pour out this whole thing, all of it, on the one who has given her much. And so you have this cost of her worship. The cost of her worship is the value of what she's pouring out, but it's also the cost of her worship is the reputation because as we're going to see, this isn't looked on kindly. This isn't acknowledged by everyone as beautiful. This is actually, she's, she's rebuked. She's told that she's wrong and that she did the wrong thing. And so the cost of her worship is both a, a monetary value, but it's also a reputation value. It's also how she's viewed by others. So we see the fullness of her worship, that she comes ready to pour the whole thing out, and we see the cost of her worship. We have John's account. If you look in John 12, we actually know that while Mark doesn't name this woman, this woman's name is Mary. And, and her, her worship, her pouring out, is because of what Jesus has done for her. It says in John 12, 1-3, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of, one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So now we have a name. We have Mary. And while the name isn't all that important, we, we do know that her response is not something that's being done, uh, is not first from herself. It's a response to the way that she's been loved. She's responding to the love of Jesus that has come and actually restored and healed her brother who was dead and given him life. And so, whenever we respond to the love of Christ, it's a, it's a reaction to His love. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because He first loved us. Why is this story so beautiful? Why is it being held up to say, hey, this is, wherever the Gospel is preached, this woman's story is going to be remembered and made much of. It's because it's a response to the great love that's been poured out in our lives that we've received from Jesus. But we're never going to worship like this if we haven't experienced that love. We're not going to sell everything that we have. We're not going to have great sacrifice. We're not going to pour out our lives unless we first experience that we have been loved by Jesus. 
That He poured out His life for us. That we were dead in our sin. And while we were dead, while we were still rebelling against God, He came and poured out His life for us. We see this and we're like, man, Jesus says that's beautiful, so it must be beautiful. And then I think that there's something in us that also wants to respond in beauty, that wants to walk in those ways. But we cannot do that unless we realize what Jesus has done for us. That in our sin, we, we owed a debt that we could not pay. And so at the right time, Christ died for us. He paid the debt for us. He went all the way to the cross, which we're seeing in this narrative right now. This is the Passion Week. This is Jesus working His love out for a lost world. And we want to respond in kind. And so because of the great love that He has for us, we love because He first loved us. I think we have to see that this love that the woman is pouring out, like this beautiful, intimate, lavish love that she's pouring out has been poured out on us first. Ephesians 1, 7-10. I love... Paul is a guy that you don't think about that writes really poetically. A lot of it is very legal. A lot of it is, almost seems transactional, which probably is because of his uh, upbringing and his education. And yet some of the things he writes, you're like, man, that's beautiful. It says in Ephesians 1, 7-10, in him, talking about Christ, we have redemption through his blood. That's that, that legal, that transaction, this then this thing. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then he uses the word, which he lavished upon us. That's not a little bit. That's not just enough. Like, Jesus didn't give you just enough. He lavished his love on us. And so the woman responds with the same lavish love. She breaks the alabaster jar and she just pours it on him. Washes his feet with her hair. See, Mary is a disciple who has been with Jesus and is hearing the things that he's saying. Judas heard the things that Jesus is saying and his his heart responded in selfishness and in betrayal. Mary hears the things that Jesus is saying and she's moved towards worship. She heard Jesus say that in Mark 10... 45, that Jesus had come to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And so somewhere in her mind that's triggered, Jesus is going to go die. It's triggered because he said it very clearly <laughs> several times to the disciples, even though they continue to argue and rebel against it and say, that can't be the plan, Jesus. But Jesus has not, could not be more clear with them about what's going to happen. And so Mary knows this, and so she comes and she's pouring this this nard and this oil over Jesus, and it says that very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. In verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, 
We hear words when it says Jesus said we need to stop and we need to listen. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. All these disciples, so many of them missing the point. So many of them not hearing the very clear words of Jesus that says that he's going to die. He's going to go lay down his life as a ransom for many. But Mary hears and she responds in worship, anointing his body for for burial. She responds to truth with love. And Jesus says that she's done a beautiful thing to me. I think this is where the rubber really meets the road for us because if you're like me, and, and maybe you are, maybe you're not, it doesn't matter. Like the, it's, it's not about who I am, but I just know that I struggle with the pragmatic aspect of things. I place a lot of value on things that would lead to, uh, to very evident good. I probably would have been one of the people that said, hey, we should have sold that because we could have fed all the poor. Instead of seeing it as this beautiful act of worship between one who's been given much by her Savior and Him. How often do we do that? There's a, there's a place in us created in the image of God where we are worshipers. Where we would respond to His love and His kindness and His grace towards us with worship and emotion and uh, re- react that way. And yet sometimes we are the first ones in line to say, hey, why was that ointment sold and wasted like that? We could have given it to the poor. And they scolded her, and Jesus rebukes them. In a, in a culture where everything's always moving forward and we're all about efficiency and productivity, Jesus is speaking something different. And I pray that we would hear it today. I don't know what that means. I don't know, like, okay, because now my next action is, okay, what do I do? How do I fix this? How do I go and do the right thing with that? But there's a lover of your soul who has purchased your heart and your mind and your whole life at great value. Do you know that? And do you long to worship Him with everything that you are? Or do we say, thanks, and now I need to go and make these other things happen? Do we spend time with Jesus? Do we read his word? Challenged with um, the book Song of Songs. Trying to see that in a new way and in a way that um, I can see Jesus' love for me and my love for him. So I would encourage you this week. Like, what what does that mean? So many of us in here are single. It's crazy. Like, in a congregation 
with a group of people this size, to have this many single people. Listen, I'm telling you that in this moment, there's a truth that you can have a satisfaction in your singleness by knowing that Jesus is a lover of your soul that is better than anything else you will ever experience. And we have, we have sold you a lie saying that you will not be complete until you have someone else in your life who loves you completely. I'm sorry that, that I've portrayed that because you have Jesus who knows you and loves you completely. You have the lover of your soul and you can have the same intimate worship with a God who, who created the whole world. Today, like you don't have to wait. And so I pray that, that we would cling to that. That we would cling to that in our singleness. That we would cling to that in our marriages. That we would really begin to believe that Jesus is sufficient and altogether good and lovely and beautiful. And that that would change everything that we do. There's more to that. And I'd like to find it out together. So let's, like, can, we, can we just say, let's find that out together. Let's plumb the depths of that to see what does that mean that I, I have a Jesus who is the lover of my soul and who wants to know me and, and me to know Him intimately and to be satisfied there. That I don't need anything else. See, this is the promise of Scripture. All of Scripture. That we have a God who is our God and we are His people. Now we take that and we make it very theory-oriented and kind of this heavy, heady idea. But Mary is believing that same truth and she's saying, Jesus is my God and I am His. And she's doing it in a way that is way different. Genesis 17, 7-8, God's first promise to Abraham says that I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring ever after throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be, your, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Then it's picked up by all of the prophets. It's picked up I will be their God and they will be my people. But somehow we don't get from there to this idea of Jesus, lover of my soul. And it's the same truth. It's the exact same truth that we need to believe and operate in. And we see Jesus pointing and holding out Mary and He says, look, if you see her, you see a beautiful thing. And she's held out as an example to us. But we've responded with judgment, with lack of understanding, just as many of the other disciples respond. We've re responded with criticism and ridicule and said that people just aren't living life or that they're crazy or that um, they have no grip on reality. That's our response. And Jesus' response is He raises her up and says, listen, wherever these things, the Gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. 
Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, we are not to love Jesus instrumentally in order to get things from him like health, wealth, and happiness. When you think about it, that's what Judas was doing. He, he had a relationship with Jesus where he wanted the things of Jesus rather than Jesus himself. Keller continues, we are to love Jesus aesthetically for the sheer beauty of who he is and what he has done. The disciples had not reached the spiritual level of this woman. They believed Jesus was the Messiah and that he in some way was going to liberate them, but their devotion to him was still calculated and limited. There was a limit to what they thought appropriate to give him. This morning, maybe you've had some limits. You've, you've had some limits to what you think is appropriate to give to Jesus. And, and maybe it's not even like a limit, like you're going to cap it. Maybe it's you think that you've given enough to him to check a box. Maybe it's a Sunday morning, and if I give two hours on Sunday morning, then I can have the rest of my day to, to relax and do whatever it is that I want to do. And Jesus is saying, no, I have given everything for you that you may enter into an everything relationship with me. And so this morning we have uh, an opportunity to repent. I've already said that I've have, I have to lead the way in this repentance. I've valued practicality over beauty. I've valued the things of Jesus over, than the, per, over the person of Jesus. We need to repent of not worshiping Jesus. Not spending time with Jesus. Of not giving everything that we have to Jesus. We also need to repent of not caring for the poor. Listen, the disciples are saying, hey, we should have done that for the poor. But the reality is that if they'd have had it, and we have it in, uh, in, in the other gospel, that Judas probably wouldn't have spent it on the poor. That was just an excuse. What excuses do we have in our own hearts and then how are we not taking advantage of, of a, a real excuse? Like, we have the poor. We should give to the poor. We should meet the lonely. We should go out into the highways and byways and meet people in their needs. But we use that as a reason for not worshiping Jesus. And both are true. You can worship Jesus and you can give to the poor and you can meet the needs of those in your city. And so we have to repent of those things. We repent and we believe. We need to believe that Jesus is infinitely beautiful. I, I don't know. I think, I think that we need, we're scratching the surface of some of these things. And we need to believe that He is infinitely beautiful. And we need to read His Word. And we need to pray and say, God, would you by the power of your Spirit reveal that to me because I want to go after you with everything that I am. We need to believe that Jesus has loved us. Not us corporately, but you individually. Each one of you, he has loved you extravagantly. We're going to take communion in a little bit. And if there's any questions about the extravagance and the, the depth of his love for us, it is on the cross that we see it. That he loved us extravagantly. We need to believe the truth of the scripture that says that he is our God and we are his people. And that's not a big over kind of canopy idea. It's a very individual idea. You are his and he is yours. So I pray that we would repent and believe, that we would see this beautiful worship of Mary, that we'd walk in those things, and that we'd be patient as we try to figure that out together, encouraging one another.
watching what Jesus does as he makes us into a people of worshipers. God, we thank you. We thank you that we can pray with confidence. That you're doing this. That even in our pragmatism, you are moving us toward love and adoration, intimacy, lavishness, worship. Lord, I thank you that you are um, drawing us back to our first love. Some of us have forgotten, and we've become so. Um, ingrained in religious practices that we've forgotten that Jesus is the lover of our souls. And so Lord, I thank you for your kindness and your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. I want to pray that today as we take communion, we would remember the extravagant outpouring of your love for a sinner like us. God, that we were blind, that we were dead, and you you gave us sight and you gave us life, Lord. Just as Mary is responding to her brother being dead and now alive in Christ, Lord, we would respond in the same way as we were dead and we are alive in Christ. God, and we would pour out our vial of worship over you. All of our lives. For your glory and your fame. In Jesus' name, amen.